Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week we're off to find Christmas and a whole lot more in Africa as the new voice of pan-African food, Lorato, whisks us off on a tour of the latest obsession in culinary cultures. You know, because in the West, we have this culture of trying to translate authenticity to the max. You know, we have to make everything from scratch to to sort of celebrate and honour the people. But the people aren't bothered about making it from scratch all the time. Mm. <laughs> Lorato is on a mission to become our guide to the bounty of new recipes and ancient rituals, which we can't get enough of. Her debut cookbook, Africana, has appeared everywhere. And I asked her how that feels. It feels fantastic, actually. Um, I'm very happy. Um, about all the attention that Africana is getting. Um, cause I think it deserves it. I think, you know, I worked very hard and I told stories from, you know, my experience, stories of family, stories of experiences from across Africa. And I really desperately wanted these stories shared. So the, the best way to get these stories shared as widely as possible is not just for cooks to buy the book, but for the media different sorts of people to champion the book, to share the book. It's it's more than I could have ever wished for. I'm really happy. Well, I bet you are. But I think that it's kind of landed at a very sort of fertile period for you. You know, the media's always looking for the next big thing. And we've been through Ukraine. We've been through Romania. We've been through Poland and the culture of the food. And we're looking at the immigrant culture and the riches that that, that brings to Britain. And now it's the turn of Africa. And for you, it's pan-African, which is quite extraordinary. So it feels like the time is now. Is that what you're feeling? Is that what you're getting? That's what I'm getting. That's what I'm feeling. But obviously, I could have never planned for this. I think I think the moment was just right for me because I've been on this for many years. So I was, I'm on, I, it's in trend, but I've been doing, this is my life. I've been doing this for quite a while. Um, so it's, it's, I'm glad that it's, you know, trending. Obviously I feel, and I think a lot of people feel it's become something, a focus, especially because of the tragedies during, um, the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020, 2021. There's a lot more focus on the things of the culture of black people, which, you know, that culture, that interest has been spurred on by tragedy, but I'll take it, you know, we're, we're happy for the, um, the interest. It's good. It's timely. It's something that should stick. Um, we're, we're not a niche people. So um, I, think, I think you're right. It's, it's timely. It's, the, the ground is fertile for it. Um, and a lot of us have been doing the work. So I think, you know, we're only reaping the benefits of the seeds that we've sown for a very long time and well overdue, I think. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, it's a great read. I mean, there's nothing more interesting to me than food culture. I just love it. And what you've done is you've done pan-African food culture. Africana is a celebration of the whole continent. I mean, why, for a start, did you decide to take on in your first cookbook the whole of Africa? The audacity, right? (laughs) (laughs) Who does she think she is? (laughs) Um, I've had somebody make a comment on a YouTube channel about that actually like how dare she you know try to represent the whole of africa (laughs) well i mean one of the answers is that you have actually traveled a lot through africa you don't just come from nigeria so explain a little bit about how you came to travel so much as a child um my mother was just a curious cat she's she you know she's just my mother i'm i'm just like my mother she's always jumping around really sociable traveling and she wanted that life for us 
she didn't she wasn't satisfied with you know us being nigerian being stuck in nigeria she just thought this is not enough for my child so from a very young age she'd always talked about traveling experiencing this and that and she also traveled she she was always coming back from hong kong south africa so i just thought oh my gosh my mother's having so much fun learning so much she'd bring back food from different countries so it was a very natural progression for me to grow up into a woman that was interested in the world People might assume that my interest is only in African cooking. I just choose to be evangelical about African cooking, but I love all food. I'm fascinated by food from across the world, but I just felt Africa needed, you know, more recognition and more sort of um, championing. So my my lifestyle, my upbringing as a child was really um, has really, uh, you know, uh, it prepared me for this book. The experiences I had, lots of it are shared in the book as stories, things that perhaps my mother even was surprised that I'd write about things that she would regard as regular, you know, basic. This is not a big deal. Going to the north of Africa to find shea butter. It's like, you know, what's so special about that? But it's special. It's an experience that a lot of people will never have, can, can only dream of having Africans and non-Africans alike. So for me, I just felt like, you know, I, I grew up to a point where I was living in a country where you know, the, the the championing of food was always very, you know, British, Italian, just for me, I just got tired of it. It's the same old thing, wonderful food. But I felt African food is so glorious. So um, there's this unending mystery and just joy and vibrancy that I felt was missing in the in, in the mainstream. And I just wanted to write a book that celebrated that. And I, I you know, I did my best. <laughs> yeah. And it is so full of stories. And I mean, I love the fact that you know, you start even with your name, which means love in Soto Tswana, yes, uh, which yes. is spoken in southern African countries like Lesotho and, and Botswana. Yes. But you come from Nigeria. So and even Africa, at yeah. birth, your mother was giving you this gift of a pan-African kind of sensibility. Yes, yes, yes. And that's what I say. I explain to people. Some people think people are not sure where I'm from because my very essence is pan-African. <laughs> my name is not even from where I'm from, you know? So for me, I took that as a big sign that I, I'm doing the right thing. Um, you know, I have every right to, to... Lots of Western chefs write about food that, you know, is not of their... You know, they're not from those areas. Nobody questions them. So. Exactly. I mean, it is hilarious how stereotyping we are yeah. in this country about people's food. You can only write about, you know, Ukrainian food if you're from Ukraine. You yeah. can only write about Moroccan food if you're from Morocco. And and yet, you know, we celebrate the melting pot of, of, of multicultural yes. cuisines. And yet we stick people in their little boxes. But anyway, you can, as you say, you're just going to go with this one. Um, and you really do go all over Africa in your book. You go from um, Uganda to Tunisia, for example, and you go from the street markets of Lagos to the religious rituals in homes of Eritrea. Did you actually physically go to all these different places or did you just spend a lot of time on Google? I've been to a lot of the countries, Senegal, Ghana, Benin, and, and the book, I mentioned those experiences in there. And I haven't been to a lot of these countries as well. But what, I, what I've done is... Even if I haven't been to a country, I've been a very curious child. I have a lot of friends from several parts of Africa. I have a lot of friends who have shared their experiences. And I also did quite a bit of research. I contacted chefs, cooks doing amazing things across the world. I spoke to a, a, an Ethiopian lady in Australia who, who does lots of um, coffee ceremonies. And, you know, I spoke to her about family how she um, enjoys and celebrates her culture in Australia. And, you know, questions like, 
do you actually make injera, which is the, it's like a sourdough bread um, that's a tool to eat almost everything in, in, in Ethiopia and Eritrea. And I asked her, I said, do you make injera by yourself at home? And she says, no, I just buy it from the shop. <laughs> you know, because in the <laughs> West, we have this culture of trying to translate authenticity to the max. You know, we have to make everything from scratch to, to sort of celebrate and honor the people. But the people aren't bothered about making it from scratch all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I spoke to people like this to learn their culture, how they celebrate their culture and the nuances. So I can share that in the stories. Yeah, I mean, you were a journalist for a long time for a national Nigerian paper, and you go at this subject like a journalist. You're asking people, as any journalist would, rather than sort of, you know, putting your backpack on and and, and travelling all over Africa. You're you're pulling out stories from your childhood, but you're also asking curious questions. But then you do go to the street markets of uh, Lagos, isn't it? That you you particularly go to, as well as. Peckham and yes. uh, you know and <laughs> other markets in South London and you're you're asking these questions of street hawkers and mamas when you did it in Lagos they did find it a bit odd didn't they yes so Africans generally and this is a big generalization that I've noticed across Africa but it's something that I've noticed and perhaps if you're selling something, you might have this suspicion. There's this suspicion from if you're asking too many questions, you know, you're almost uh, suppressing the seller to sort of put on their A game to sell. You know, their objective is to sell, not to talk too much about why, where, when. So my questions were a little bit too intrusive, but for good reason. So I'd explain to them why, you know, I'm like, Mama, I'm only asking this because I'm writing something for a newspaper. I'm going to put you in the paper, you know, and more people will come and buy your pepper. (laughs) And then they'd understand that I wasn't asking because I was planning on bringing on a, a competitive stall next to them. I was asking because I wanted people to understand why, what, where, when, you know, why are you selling these now? Where do they come from? What are the nuances of the produce, you know, where they come from? How, how can we detect, you know, the best produce from where? So they understood why <laughs> I was asking these questions. I also had to understand where they're coming from and what their objective is, which is to sell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Yemisi Arabasala, who has also been on this programme and has also interviewed you yeah. at uh, your book launch at Staunt's Books, didn't Wonderful. she? Wonderful. It was amazing. <laughs> and she said that she, when she was asking questions in the street market, she, she got the same kind of reception. But she said that, you know, Nigerians don't tend to talk, well, Africans generally don't seem to obsess about food like a lot of other cultures do and increasingly the British do as well. That's not your experience, is it? That's not my experience. But, you know, sometimes we might be seeing things from our own eyes because I obsess about food. I bring it out of people. I I ask questions in a very, um, you know, I try to tap into people's personal experiences. So when I meet people, they may not be thinking about food. They may not be obsessed about food. But my questions tend to be about family, occasion. So if I'm in a taxi and there's a Tunisian driver, I'd ask him, oh, you know, where are you from? You sound, I speak French as well. So I'd speak to him in French. I'd tap into his sensibilities. I'd ask, you know, it's Christmas time. Are you going to be with family? What do you do at Christmas? What do you eat at Christmas? And then I pull out those answers. So my experience, I'd say, is based on my obsession with food. (laughs) I know how to get it out of people. (laughs) 
<laughs> and, and that kind of passion, I mean, it is really palpable with you. I mean, you recently did a supper club at our house and I went to a, a launch at Brighton Community Kitchen, which was fantastic. And people hang on your every word. You have such a lovely sort of vivacious quality about you that, that it really is... Uh, something that people want a part of. And they do come from all over the, the country, don't they, to yes. to try and tap into something. I remember talking to um, somebody who wanted to, to find her way home through meeting you and tasting some of your food. Oh. Now, I wonder if that's something that you come across a lot when you're meeting your followers um, or whether this is something quite new for you to actually meet your followers in the flesh this sense of there's an identity out there somewhere and they're trying to get it through you yes it's something that I notice it's not necessarily something that I I thought would happen in the beginning I just thought you know you know I'm just trying to express myself you know, share share the food of my people and I hope you'd like it. But I didn't realise how far reaching and how sentimental and important this would become to a vast range of people. So now, like the lady you're talking about, we have people who literally come up to me and say, oh my God, I'm so happy that you're Nigerian because I've just found out that I'm a quarter Nigerian. For me, it's a different sensation, but for her, it's truly deeply um, personal and important. And you also have people who know nothing about anything to do with Africa, food, geography, nothing, no relationship. And they're curious, they're excited, they want to learn. And then you have people who perhaps have mixed families or may have traveled once or somebody who has never been to Africa probably has no interest, but her father or his mother or relative has lived in Africa at some point. So I attract a vast variety of people and all their stories are very, very touching and the, the stories that lead back to identity and finding one's identity are the most touching because there's nothing more special than knowing who you are. I know who I am. Perhaps that's why I'm more confident in talking about food and sharing and asking people. I know who I am. I love who I am. Um, and I think it's something that, uh, it's something that I, I can't hide. People see that. They love that. And I'm just grateful that, that I, I have that blessing. Yeah, I was talking to a uh, a black woman who came to your uh, book launch at Brighton Community Kitchen. She was brought up from a baby uh, by white Jewish people. Wow. Um, and she lived, a, a, they kept kosher at home. And so when, what she, and she felt very close to them. She'd had a wonderful childhood with them, but there was something that drew her back to her mm. black heritage. And she, she was really interested in what you were doing. It was, it was incredibly touching to watch her find her way back to herself. Yeah, through food. Yeah. Yeah, through food. Let's go through some of your food moments, um, which really tell the story of you your first food moment is the spiced hibiscus and ginger yes 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 the bisap when I was quite young maybe maybe 13 14 I can't quite remember I'm bad with age and years I remember living in Benin which is the Republic du Benin so Republic of Benin it's a it's bordering uh, Nigeria but my mother was very intentional. She wanted us to speak French. She wanted us to have a multilingual lifestyle. She thought, you know, what's closer to Nigeria than going all the way to France? You know, not a French-speaking Clever country. Woman. Yeah. And so in Benin, you know, I, I think one of my most vivid memories was, you know, seeing these women carrying big, um, you know, sort of baskets or bowls of bisap. And this is a hibiscus drink. So they, they put it in a, in a cellophane wrap and freeze it so they're like lollies 
And this was just the most wonderful, refreshing thing I'd ever tasted in my life. A little bit tart, also quite spicy from the ginger. So after school, would rush outside and I'd notice, you know, everyone buying things from the women. The women knew what time the kids would finish and they'd, they'd come to the gate and would buy um, lots of different treats. And Bisap was my favorite, refreshing, wonderful sort of rouge purple. And that was the first time I'd tried anything with hibiscus, even though it's something that's popular in Nigeria, in the northern part. But because I lived in Lagos, I'd never really come across it. And this this sort of stuck in my mind. And to date, I really love sharing and cooking with hibiscus. Where did you go to boarding school? So I went to boarding school in Nigeria, in Bina, and then in the UK as well. Mm. <laughs> Jumping wow. up and down, yeah. <laughs> and this was all because your mother wanted to give you a multinational she, education. She wanted that. And of course, she was a single working mom running her businesses. So it, it did, you know, it was good for us to be in boarding school because then, you know, she had time and space. But at the same time, we had this flexibility of, you know, being in boarding school, being at home, seeing her, you know, back and forth. It was great. I, th- I thought it was wonderful. I, I love my childhood. <laughs> and some, and you know, food memories are terribly important to those kind of uh, punctuated childhoods, aren't they? A lot yes. of people talk about uh, food memories, grandma's cooking special foods. And your second food moment is one that takes you right back to your grandmother, braised greens and sweet peppers. But it's not just a delicious, wonderful food memory. It's, it's really quite poignant. Tell us about this one. Yeah, so I see the, the braised greens for me, is you know it's funny the funny the funny side of it is like it's like Popeye food you know food that gives you life and it was food that literally gave my grandma life she was battling with diabetes at the time living with with us in Lagos at my mom's house and I remember being you know on holiday from that was the time I was in boarding school so would come back home on holiday and my grandma was there my mother thought it was important that we spend this these last few years with her so holiday at my mom's house with my grandma and I remember she really loved plantains. But the thing at that time, I learned early on from the doctors that plantains have a quite a high starch content. Um, and the doctors advised her not to eat plantains because they're too sweet, too sugary. And she, she protested. She's like, no, I have to eat my plantains. So they said, fine, you can have the green unripe plantains, which have less starch. And, you know, you can have that with lots of greens. You know, they advised her on what to eat. And I thought, oh, OK. I'd like to help, you know, feed grandma. So my mom taught me how to make this really simple braised green dish um, with vegetables. My grandma liked it with some crayfish and palm oil, sometimes fresh fish or smoked fish. And it was very simple, very simple, sumptuous, wonderful. Um, she'd eat it with boiled green plantains. And to this day, for me, it's food that gives me life. You know, it's food that I eat almost every day. I try to have it in the fridge all the time. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's a sentimental part of it that makes me feel close to my mother and my grandma by eating this Popeye food. Mm. <laughs> um, and it's and it's actually a dish that has several variations across Africa. So in Yoruba land, which is in Nigeria, they call it efo, but their version is sort of with a particular kind of green amaranth, for example, and very spicy with scotch bonnets. Um, in East Africa, they call it sukumawiki. They put garlic, you know, it's stewed with garlic, sometimes peppers, tomatoes. So across Africa, you'll find a version of this simple braised green. That's why I called it what I did in the book. So it's like a simple name that cuts across um, regions. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about um, people finding their way home through food, when I was reading through your book, 
I found this strange memory. As I was reading Kukupaka, which you cooked up at my supper club um, a couple of weeks back, I recognised this. I, I couldn't really understand it. And so I read it out to my daughter and I said, what do you think this is? And she said, this is our family curry. This is the craziest thing ever. <laughs> and this is it's quite extraordinary. My father was in the King's African Rifles in the 1950s. And he went to Eritrea. He went to Sudan. He learned Swahili. And he was always really fascinated by the foods wherever he went in the army. Yes. He was always fascinated. And he was an officer, but he, he worked in the cookhouse so that he could get really close to the soldiers' food. The, you know, the officers had different food. And he used to make this extraordinary curry that pulled upon all sorts of wonderful little flavours, including tamarind. Hmm. Now, <laughs> you say that you added this. So I'm fascinated at the, the origin of this, this curry that somehow connects you and me. When I've had kukupaka in, um, in East Africa, so it's a Tanzanian dish. And a friend of mine, Mboni, who's a professor in Tanzania, she, we went to university together in London, actually, and remained best friends. She taught me how to make this dish but I was taught to make the dish with limes. But, you know, then for my book, for Africana, I, I recreated the dish in a very... I, I changed the recipe, but kept the essence of the dish. For example, in Tanzania, they'd grill the chicken separately and add it to the sauce afterwards. But I'm such a greedy gob. I wanted maximum flavor. So I poached the chicken first in the coconut and spice broth and then grill the chicken and then coat the chicken again with tamarind, um, coconut flakes, um, and some seasoning, some some spices, and put it, grill it, put it back in the sauce. So, and then I finished the sauce with some tamarind because I thought, you know, I'd rather use tamarind for sweetness. I thought the tamarind matched the coconut better than the lime. The lime's still a wonderful alternative, which is actually what I I know they use most often in Tanzania. But I changed the recipe. <laughs> So it's amazing. Which, that which bizarrely, <laughs> my father did too. So, you know, you poached the chicken in a coconut broth with cardamom and garam masala, yes. as he did, ginger, as he did. Um, but the family recipe kind of was born, I thought, in Ipo in Malaysia, where we oh, lived when I was wonderful. very little. So he went there with the King's African Rifles. And my parents then played with that goat curry that they were having in Ipo, but it was essentially the same coconut broth. They played with it literally all their lives. And my daughter made it just as my father was dying 10 years ago this week, actually wow. tomorrow. Um, and it was the last thing that he put on the edge of his tongue before he died. And he said, Lulu, <laughs> that is perfect. So this is a really important curry for me and my family. And here it is being cooked up at my house by Lorato from an African book African. <laughs> I mean it just makes a lot of sense though because Africa was terribly important to him so that was really important so thank you for that that was it oh, no it's really now now we are connected forever and you know for me what I take away from this story is this just shows that we're more connected than we ever imagined mm. and this is another thing I tried to do with the book which believe me it was very difficult because I kept asking myself Will this work? I'm talking about so many different countries. I hope this doesn't confuse people. I hope this guides them. I hope this inspires them. And I think it's worked. I think it's worked with Africana. People are able to pick up this book that's representing, celebrating such a vast region. But then I do say in my intro, so nobody you know, doubts my intention. This is just one book. 
by one person. There's so many of us with so many different experiences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the textures, isn't it? I'm just about to interview Irina Georgescu uh, about Tava, her Romanian book. Beautiful. And uh, she talks about the layering of different fabrics which come from different cultures, which yes. make up Romanian food. And it feels that that's what you're doing. Um, you give it a Christmas twist uh, with your fourth <laughs> food moment. Tell us about the Christmas pudding puff puffs. So my Christmas pudding puff puff, one of my favourites in the book, a very natural recipe that I didn't just like a lot of the recipes I didn't sit down and think hmm let's make this you know it was a very natural thing that I I sort of made almost by mistake a few years ago so we have a dish in Nigeria called puff puff and it's a dish that you can also find you can find it's bullfrot in Ghana you can find it in several different African countries called different things it's a drop donut essentially you know we have donuts all over the world but um I also have Dutch family and Oli Bolin, we enjoy that at Christmas period. We make Oli Bolin um, on New Year's Eve. It's a New Year's Eve treat you enjoy in Amsterdam and across the Netherlands. And I hate, sorry to be so dramatic, I despise Christmas pudding. I just cannot stand it. <laughs> and I'm one of those people who likes to protest a lot. If I don't like it, I don't want to be forced to eat it. If all my, all, Even if all the favorite chefs in the world champion it, I'm like, no, I will not budge like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and so every, at every Christmas dinner, there's always leftover Christmas pudding that I have to do away with. And I thought, gosh, let me just let me not waste this for once. And then I, I was making puff puff slash olive oil in. And then I thought olive oil in does have spices and, you know, raisins, dried fruit. I thought, let me just crumble this really nice. Um, it was, my brother-in-law had leftover ve- a really nice vegan Christmas pudding. It, it smelled really good. So I crumbled it into my puff puff dough, uh, my puff puff batter and fried it. And it was the most amazing thing ever. Christmassy, wonderful and just a wonderful marriage of my African culture, my Dutch family experiences and that British, you know, experience of pudding, you know, of Christmas pudding. And I thought it was perfect. And I thought it had to be in Africana. <laughs> <laughs> In the new year, you're starting your Ghana cooking experiences. Tell us about that. Oh, uh, immersive cooking experiences. This is an extension of everything I've been doing. I've been planning this for even before the book. This is like my supper club, but supper club on wheels. Or We're traveling together because I've always felt I, I'm, I'm working so hard to bring the essence of Africa to homes of cooks across the world. I want to take you to Africa, to the source. There's nothing like being, you know, standing under the African warmth, the sun, you know, walking on the beach, eating the food, meeting the people. My book is never going to give you as much of an experience as being there in person. So I thought, I thought, wow, this this is something that I've been dreaming of for a long time. So I thought, let's do it. And that's so interesting. And what kind of people are signing up? People who love travel, love food want to experience something genuine and just want to meet people and love food. People who want to go to the motherland, for sure. People from America have been really interested. Um, And people who love travel. And most of all, I specifically chose, I've designed this first trip, even though we're going to stay in a luxury hotel at the beginning of the trip, we're spending most of the trip in an eco lodge, a sumptuous 100% solar powered eco lodge. I stayed there um, in the spring. And it's just amazing. We're, we're in a world where we need to sort of do more to protect our planet as much as we can. We can't always, you know, we can't, 
we can't um, abandon all our luxuries, you know, in one go, but we can do little things. And I thought, if we're going on this holiday, how can I make it as eco-friendly as possible? You know, I'm one of those people who I'm not a camper. You wouldn't find me camping, you know, in the regular <laughs> I can't imagine you camping, Lorato. <laughs> you know, so this is a really comfortable, really wonderful, you know, ocean-facing lodge. Where we're going to be cooking, eating, and people can do things at their own pace. If you don't want to cook, you want to watch... It, you know, it's it's a holiday for food lovers, for us to enjoy, celebrate, respect Africa and come back to tell those stories. Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, the best Hanukkah mass present I could possibly give you. An extended interview with a woman who began the exploration of food and identity, which is at the core of everything that I love and this show. Claudia Roden has been capturing the real stories and oral recipes of foods across the Mediterranean and Middle East since she was in her early 20s. You can hear my interview with her about her book Med in the Cooking the Books archive. But here we go back almost to the beginning to celebrate. But here we go back to celebrate 20. But here we're celebrating 25 years of her internationally acclaimed book, The Book of Jewish Food. Her internationally acclaimed book of Jewish food. Its influence is a phenomenon. We have foods in our repertoire now that have been hidden in the kitchens of the Jewish diaspora for centuries. Here in an extended holiday special, she talks about all the things that are good in life. Beautiful recipes passed down through matriarchies, storytelling that binds communities and the universal pleasure of food that matters. We met in her London home. And I asked her how it feels to be holding this embossed golden anniversary edition of her most influential book in her hands. Thanks for listening. You can sign up to my newsletter at jillysmith.com and follow me on Instagram. I'm, I'm at food Jilly Smith and I'll see you next week. And I'll see you in the new year for more stories of life through the prism of food. Have a very Merry Christmas and Hag Sameach. And Hag Sameach. Have a very Merry Christmas and Hag Sameach. And Hag Sameach. And Hag Sameach. <laughs>